0: me encourage you to pick up a bulletin and to keep track of what's going on. One important thing, uh, Vance and Rachel left, and when they did it, it all kind of unfolded very quickly for us. We didn't have a lot of time, and so we did want to just have a time to kind of honor them and celebrate the work that God has called them to, kind of uh, wish them well as they go into this new ministry. And uh, like I said, it all happened so quickly. We didn't have that opportunity before they actually left. So this Friday, May 3rd, uh, 6 o'clock, we're just going to have an appreciation dinner here. Uh, it'll be potluck. So just bring bring whatever you want to bring, and uh, we'll eat whatever you bring. And uh, we'll have a good time of fellowship and just wish them well. So uh, that that is this Friday. Also, uh, Schaefer's Camp for Kids Camp is coming up. Uh, Chelsea, Daniel is, is helping us organize that. And so she needs you. If your children are going to go to Schaefer camp, she needs you to get a registration form, which is in the back in the foyer on the table and fill that out so that she can get it turned in uh, on time. So please uh, do that in a timely manner. Uh, Jared, you go ahead and come now.
1: Good morning and welcome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, our call to worship will be in John chapter 14. that's page 847 in the Pew Bible. We are glad you're here this morning, and uh, we'll begin there in verse 15. We'll look at verses 15 through 24. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither, neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We pray with me? Fathers, we gather here this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we that we have it, but more than that, we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit, that we have, God, uh, many of us, we've been changed and transformed and, and made new. We've been born again, and we have now this helper that you said that you would send into the world, God, to lead us into all truth, to, to help us to understand your word, God, to sanctify us and make us holy. But also to to make within us a dwelling place for God, so that you being in the Father and we being in you, we can all be connected, God, and and unified. And we praise you for that, God. What a what a privilege, what a blessing, God, and a joy it is to not be to be no longer cast aside, to be no longer disconnected from God, to be no longer called aliens and strangers to the covenants of promise. God, to be no longer those who are cut off from the life of God, but we who are in Christ have the great treasure of God dwelling within us. And so God, let us guard that deposit. Let us guard that treasure. God, let us, as we talked about in Sunday school, carefully instruct each other, but also to carefully instruct our kids, God, and to set God before them. So, God, we thank you that we have the truth. We thank you that we possess the spirit, God. We thank you for eternal life. But, God, let us not be complacent in holding that pledge and that promise. Let us also, God, seek to implant life in our kids in every way that we, humanly speaking, can do so, God. That we would saturate their minds with the word that we would be pouring into them the truth of god that we would be as the word says diligent god to uh, to do this work and, and and keeping in mind that that's this process of of, of wearing down of shaping of, sh- of sharpening of sculpting god their minds and their hearts around the truth of your word so god help us as as parents as individual members of Union Baptist Church, as a church collectively, to be diligent, to be about the work of discipleship, to be diligent, God, to guard that deposit of faith so that it's not just something that dies when all of us who possess it die, but that it would be reproducible in generation after generation after generation, that we would hear what Jesus said in the Great Commission and that we would make disciples and teach them to observe all that you've commanded, which actually includes making disciples disciples. And so God, that's the, the front side, that commands the commands, the, 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 the need to do so. But God, there's also the, the inside. There's the desire to do so that we so often lack. So God, I just stand here this morning confessing for myself, and, and I know that I'm confessing for others in this, this room this morning that we so often don't feel the desire. We so often put other things in front of this work of, of passing on truth to the next generation. And God, we would so ask and, and seek that you would help us and enable us and give us the right desires, that, that you would work in us both to will and to do for discipling our children and, dis, and and reaching out evangelistically to the world around us and making disciples there. God, help Union Baptist Church not to fail in this endeavor and give us not only the commands but the willingness to complete that. God, and the Spirit's assistance to reach those goals. We don't want to be like Joshua and his generation that fought all the battles that were to fight, but left the home unprotected. God, we want to guard our homes as well. We want to guard them from the enemy that would devour and help us to do that. God, we ask it in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.
0: We do have a special guest with us this morning, not really a guest, uh, Brent and Julie are obviously members of our church here, but Brent is uh, the director of missions of the Blackford Breckenridge Association, our association, and uh, it's our joy and honor to have him here this morning to, to speak to us, I, um, ask him to, to preach. He's been a blessing to us as a church, and his family's a blessing to us. And he's, uh, the Lord is using him to do a great work in in our association. So we're we're uh, grateful to have him here this morning. And Brent, you come and bring us God's word. Good
2: morning to you. If you would go ahead and turn your Bibles with me to Jude chapter three. You somebody got that, didn't you? How about verse three? We're going to read a little bit more than that, but we'll start there. It's good to know somebody's paying attention. Now let's just see if I can hold it all together for a few minutes, right? Um, you know, there's, there's some, there are some things that, as you are in different churches, like I am from week to week, oftentimes preaching, sometimes the great challenge is knowing what to say to the congregation. But I'm realizing increasingly that there are some things that we just always need to hear, that we always need to come back to. And, and I think Jude speaks to one of those issues that is always before us, that was made a, a, That reality came fresh to me back in in the fall, about the week before Thanksgiving last year. I was listening to the news one day and heard two stories put together I would have sworn beforehand had nothing to do with one another. And, And it was between two names that many of you will recognize this morning. A man named Jim Jones from back in the 1970s. He had great notoriety. The other is Horatio Spafford, the man who penned the words to, it is well with my soul. Now if you know anything of the story of Jim Jones, a a cult leader who began a somewhat word of faith sort of uh, ministry in California, was heavily involved with political figures and all sorts of different aspects of, of finance, managed to take a, a group of about a 1,000, just under a 1,000, most of whom were not poor, ignorant, uneducated folks, but college-educated people with, with resources, with money, who sold their homes and took their families and moved into a jungle where ultimately he would lead them to drink cyanide poison in a mass suicide of more than 900 people. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Horatio Spafford, the man who penned the glorious gospel truths we sing, and it is well with my soul? Well, after pinning those words on his way to England to meet his wife, if you know the story, he penned those words on a ship going to meet his wife. After, after the ship his wife and three daughters was on had sank in the Atlantic Ocean. There his three daughters died and he penned the words to that very near the site of their drowning, the ship that sank with them on it. When he came back to the States, he very quickly became disgruntled with the church he had been part of and decided he'd start his own. Appointed himself not merely as a pastor, but soon declared himself to be an apostle, speaking new revelation from God. He too gathered a group of wealthy individuals around him, men who would agree with him, whatever the cost, whatever the statement, whatever the heresy and later took them and moved to Jerusalem where they would await the second coming. Also dying there, far from the gospel, far from the truth. You see, both of these men, one of them obviously from the beginning, a heretic, a blasphemer, far from God, the other, seemingly on the front end, a very faithful man, speaking great truths even and yet departing from that, going headlong into heresy. Friends, it's not near as easy to pick up on as we'd like to think it is. And so we need to be aware today of the call of Jude to contend for the faith. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Jude writes, beginning in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into essentiality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters. The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word this morning and the chance to gather around it, both as we sing its truths, And as we look at the the scripture itself, God, help us to hear this. Not, Not as an ancient word, but as your word to us here in this place on this day. Lord, let me speak with clarity. Let us hear with humility that we might all be edified and brought near to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jude begins with the address, beloved. He has a love for those whom, to whom he is writing—not a mere emotional attachment or sentiment, as will be evident in a moment—but a, but a real and genuine love. He cared for them. He wanted them to be to be well, and he's tending to their souls. His intention, he tells us, is that he wanted to write concerning salvation to celebrate the joys of salvation. <clears throat> A common salvation, he says. I love that expression. It's, it's what they all had and shared in common with one another. No one person any more saved than another, but rather it was a common salvation known to all who belong in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. For perhaps Jude had intended to, to simply walk through the gospel and what it is, how man lost and enslaved to sin in a natural state, dead to God and alive to sin, a slave to sin, had been rescued and redeemed not only from the power of sin, but just as much so from God's righteous wrath against sin, yes, even our own sin. How he left the splendors of heaven to come live among men, not only as one of us, but taking the role of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, so that in his whole life, everything he did from, from the things that he, he spoke and thought, even his emotions, the things he felt, and when he felt them, every aspect of his life was lived out in perfect obedience for the will of the Father, not even in laying down his life, being cut off from the Father with whom he had known only perfect fellowship from the beginning of time, in order that we who had been cut off, separated from him by our own sins, might be reconciled, brought back to God. Perhaps he had in mind to talk about how the the good news of Christ united them together in God, clothing them in his righteousness in order that they might walk in good deeds, giving honor to God the Father. However, his intentions, his plans, they were interrupted by the Holy Spirit of God who led him instead to write the letter that's before us right now, a letter that speaks of an urgent need, the need to contend for the gospel. And friends, I would say to you, there is always a need for us to contend for the gospel. I think in recent years, many of us have, have seen a, a reemergence of the gospel. And we begin to, to rejoice in that and to celebrate that. But we've also assumed that, that this is a glorious day in which the gospel is no longer threatened. But it's on the uptick. Dear brothers and sisters, I assure you, that is not the case. We have seen a a renewed interest in the gospel, and I am grateful for that, and we ought to celebrate it. But we are fools if we believe that it is is not under attack, even in our midst. There's always a need. Verse 4 tells us that those who have crept in unnoticed were ungodly people they perverted the grace of God by turning it into lasciviousness, sensuality, or more immorality. In other words, they focused on if it feels good, do it, was their motto. Denying the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the salvation which Jude wanted to write to them about to celebrate was under attack and was being compromised and they needed to rise up and contend for the faith as it had been delivered unto the saints once for all. It's important for us to recognize here that that Jude doesn't call them to contend for a faith or some faith or their faith. Rather, he calls us He called them and calls us today to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. First they had, some among them, those who had crept in, they used the grace of God as an excuse for sin and their desire and choice to sin betrayed their claim to serve Christ. In other words, what they did was much more important than merely what they said. It doesn't matter how glorious our profession when our lives contradict that intentionally, repetitively, unrepentantly. We need to give attention to what we're doing, not merely to what's being said. That their denial of Christ wasn't merely a matter of their words, but it was a matter of how they lived. Had they outright denied Christ with their words, they would not have been able to creep in without notice. That's important for you and I to understand today. The greatest threats to the church have never been those from outside. It has always been those from within. Those who come in professing the right things, but living in contradictions to the clear teaching of Scripture. Today is no different. Their ungodliness, their greed, their sensuality were overlooked because they said what generally sounded right and winsome. They said it with a smile on their face. They were engaging, personable, likable. How could could such men as this be that far off from the gospel? And yet it's clear that they were Recently I was in a conversation, and without divulging all the details, what one man had recently proclaimed and preached and said, which was an outright defiance of the scripture. It was laughable to anyone who knew the text at all. And one of the folks in the group said, you know, but I like him. As though that had any bearing. As though it made any difference. I like a lot of ungodly people. One of the nicest guys I ever known was a a fellow I served on a tank with when I was in the army. We lived together for months. Nice guy, but as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. Folks, being likable doesn't make people true or faithful. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, what you often find is it puts them on the outside of the camp. It lands them in jail. It gets them beaten. They seem to be the guys not too many people really cared for. Just a thought. This isn't anything new. In in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And in John 14, he he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. To manifest is simply to, to show up to be at present. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me and will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make their home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. The the connection here is, is very simply this. Notice how Jesus ties loving him to obedience, the keeping of his word. We try to dichotomize it, to make room for that, to make excuses for that. But Scripture does no such thing. It's important for us to know the grace of God is not principally about reforming our behavior, but it's changing our heart's desire. To be in Christ is to be a new creation with a desire for the things of God, the Word of God. Conversation with God, what we would call prayer, worship of God, with the people of God. If we have no desire for those things, what evidence is there that we love God? If we don't desire for to Him, if we have no desire for Him in the here and now, why in the world would we suggest we want to spend eternity with Him where He will rule perfectly? It's absurd. Those who crept in were saying the right things. But they desired the wrong things. Their desire, their heart, their love, was still for the things of the world. And so we need to contend against compromises to the faith still yet today. It's important for us to recognize and be aware that the enemies of the gospel have not diminished, but instead of increasing, become even more subtle, making them more dangerous. You see, dangers we can see usually don't pose a huge threat to us. It's the ones we don't see coming, isn't it? Of course, there's the obvious groups we can talk about. Jared mentioned Mormons in, in, in Sunday school this morning. If you're familiar with the, the, the Mormons at all, you understand they're, they talk about Jesus, but they have a whole different definition for Jesus. I know that firsthand I spent a good bit of time in, in younger years witnessing to and ministering with Mormons. And, and they would often tell me, repetitively tell me, that they believed in the same Jesus I did. But when I defined him biblically as the only begotten Son of God who, who came from heaven to earth in order to take on human form in order to, to live a life of perfection and die in our place atoning for our sins and providing us the righteousness without which we cannot see God. I never one time had a Mormon say, you know, that's the same God I believe in. That's the same Jesus I believe in. Rather, they would recognize, no, that's not the same one. There's Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ and, 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 and other fallacies. There's the Roman Catholics who deny the absolute authority of Scripture, choosing rather to trust Rather than choosing to trust God's word alone, they, they empower their church's hierarchy with authority who also denies the finished work of Christ. Obvious differences. But I'd suggest to you that there are many more subtle and cunning groups today groups that are readily making their way into our lives, some of them in our congregations, some of them in our social media feed, some of them on the television programming that we watch and listen to, some of them in our Bible studies, published by our very own Baptist publishing companies. Chief among them, most common among them, would be the word of faith movement. Historically, it was often referred to as the name it and claim it religion. It takes much of the it makes much of the power of positive confession and, and always being positive. A much more effective strategy for winning with people than with God, by the way. This motto is, is God wants you to be healthy and happy. He wants you to be enjoy all that, that life has to offer. In fact, I, I listened to a, a news report this last week in which Jill Osteen was quoted as saying, anyone who calls you to deny yourself is from Satan. I hope that you know the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, that if any man would come after me, that would include women, by the way, it's a very form. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This movement often speaks of holiness, but but only while it's simultaneously feeding discontent and greed in our lives. It refuses to teach God's word systematically, but but it instead opts for bits and pieces that are pulled entirely from their context and distorted beyond recognition. There's liberalism. Liberalism denies that scripture is in its entirety the word of God. Inspired by God without any error. You know, it's amazing to me, as, as Baptist, if you keep up with Baptist life, you'll know that back in the 80s, we fought very long battles over these issues. We to a large degree at the time, seemingly one. And now today we're turning right back to where we've been in many of our institutions and our leadership. They offer qualifications for the Word of God saying things like this. It's it's without error in its original autographs, meaning the, the original copy penned by the biblical author, but not in any of its copies, nor in all of them combined is there authority. word. Or sometimes they'll say things like this: "It contains the word of God like pipes. It delivers what we need from God, but but isn't itself what is valuable because it's not divinely inspired and authoritative." And this gives way to, 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 to what I would suggest to you this morning is one of the third most prevalent things in the life of our church: is today emotionalism. that is so common today it it focuses on what is felt and experienced and so we'll say things like this well God has said to me or God led me or God moved me or or I just had to It gives priority to personal experience and perceptions evidenced in expressions such as what I just, just shared with you, suggesting some special dispensation of revelation that's unique to the individual. In other words, it says I have some experience with God that trumps what his word says. I don't have to be obedient to the word because God has led me. Sometimes they'll even be honest enough to say, well, I think or it it seems to me and such thinking will inevitably overshadow any reference to Scripture. Dear friends, this is in the air we breathe. It's all around us. And it gets said in a hundred different ways. But it comes down to the very same things over and over again is we start to step away from and around what the scripture says to us rather than being willing to adjust our lives and thinking to it. We'll trust our education. We'll trust what our friends say. We'll trust what our gut tells us. But we won't trust the word of God. All of this feeds into what is becoming more widely known as the social justice movement, which also undermines God's word by shifting the focus in how we respond to God as individuals to how we must act as groups in order to promote justice and on a societal basis rather than pursuing justice and acting rightly in our own lives. In other words, it focuses on perceived injustices of groups and classes such as minorities, Women, the LGBTQA plus movement, and so on, with whoever might seem to be oppressed in some fashion. It calls for reparations to be made to groups that have been oppressed, and it calls for the repentance of anyone and everyone who happens to belong to an oppressor group, to a group who's identified as oppressors. If you're paying attention at all and aware of the conversations that are going on around us today, whether they be on, on the, the morning news channel or, again, a social media feed, you understand that sounds a lot more like a political movement than a religious one. And in reality, it is. But increasingly, it's getting dressed up in, in religious terminology and poffered as though somehow this is what Scripture demands of us. Please know that it's not. It's nothing more than just another grab at howard dressed in the clothes of the church. Let me share with you some common traits of of these, all the threats. I think just about regardless of of where we come from or, or what the threats might evolve to be in the future. First is there's a competition with God's word for authority. All of these will, will, will fill in something besides God's word as a basis for authority and making decisions and living life. Secondly, there's a tendency to use Christian words with different definitions. We're seeing that consistently both in the charismatic movement but also in a social justice context. There's a focus on leaders or preachers rather than on God. Dear friends, we ought to consistently be leaving the house of God thinking more about God than we do about who's bringing the message. Amen? An overemphasis on emotions and an effort to spiritualize our experiences, to to suggest that somehow we've acted in, in great compliance with all that God calls and demands of us. And the last one i give you is right out of the text, is is division. We'll see that in just a moment or two. So how do we, in the midst of all this, the the Spirit calls us to contend with the faith. To to contend is is to do combat with. This isn't a a light word, it's rather a very vigorous physical word, And to contend for the faith is no less needed for us today than it was when Jude first wrote this. For our faith, the faith delivered to us is under attack in our own churches. The Word of God calls us to contend for it. So how are we to do that? Verse 4 calls us to do so earnestly, with determination and resolve. Uh, You might use the word with diligence. The implication is that we must be willing to do so at great cost because of the great value of what's being contended for. This is a fight that's worthy of our lives. It's worthy of our livelihoods because there is nothing else in your life or in mine that's of more value than the faith that's been given to us. So we contend for it vigorously, diligently, earnestly, we're in a war, and it's an ongoing war, and it's a spiritual war. We don't war according to the flesh. We do not but with spiritual weapons. It's a difficult war. Even more difficult now because of the philosophies of the day is to go along in order to get along. Oh, don't be contentious. We must preserve the unity. Dear friends, there is no unity apart from truth. The truth of God is the only thing that can hold us together. And if our our unity isn't rooted and grounded in that, all we have is a, a, a storefront. On a good day I could say that word, but I can't right now. You know the storefront? It makes the building look nice and big, but behind it, it's just a lot of open space. You'll notice... But the call of God in our lives through His Word is, is to do so with diligence as a matter of priority. Secondly, the scripture in verse 17 tells us, But you must remember or recognize, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause the vision, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. In other words, what, what I want to remind you of this morning is this. Is it's not something new. It's not something unexpected. We should be aware of this. We should expect it coming so that, in the words of, of 1 Peter 4, we would not be surprised at the fiery ordeals or trials which come upon us. But we anticipate this. We've been told from the beginning this would be the case with the church. We're not living in a unique time. We're just living in a changing time. Verse twenty says, "But you, be, but you, behold, excuse me, beloved, but you, beloved." building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're to build one another up in the faith. This is a common instruction in the New Testament. It's repeated again and again. Let us us consider the words of, of Hebrews 10. Where the author there says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Think about how that defines our time together. That's not merely a come sit on the pew and listen to the pastor or the preacher or the Sunday school teacher or the worship leader, but rather this is a place where we're to engage one another, stirring up one another. We're participants in what's going on here as a worship service and at our time together on Sunday. How, out, how the conversations we have with one another, how we point one another to the scriptures, to faithfulness, is as crucial in this element as anything else we do and we'll never be the people God's called us to be if we don't learn to and then practice this process. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, this is a word to the church, to you and I, to take heed, to be careful, lest there be in one of us an evil, unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So once more we see that a safeguard against unbelief, against being led away by false teaching, is, is exhorting one another, just as we are also commanded in Ephesians and Colossians. Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, we need to be rooted and grounded in God's word. If you're keeping up with the blanks, it was earnestly, remember, and together. We're called to edify one another. D is is, is praying in the Holy Spirit. This is one of those places where I was uneasy because the phrase that Jude uses is also a phrase that has so commonly been hijacked in our culture today. And so we talk about praying in the Spirit. Some of you have already gone there. Your minds are are reminiscent of of some service you set in led by charismatic who tried to foster some mystical, emotional experience for you in this process. But what I would say to you is that Scripture defines this for us. let me share with you a few of the, the passages that do that. For, for I think Jude tells us something we need to know. We ought to pray in the Holy Spirit. But that is praying in line with or in keeping with the desires of the Holy Spirit, which is revealed to us through the Word of God. Listen to John 15, 7. Or you might want to make note of this. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Do you make the connection here? Praying according to His Word, the Father hears and grants that. That's because praying according to God's Word, praying for the things that we're instructed to do and be in the Word of God, is praying and keeping with the Holy Spirit. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God, looking for the the mercy of our Lord. That's E, just relying on the mercies of God. Here I'd remind you of Jesus' words in John 14 as as we considered earlier. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Jesus answered him, "If, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a glorious promise. That God, the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all the universe, would come make his home with us, with you and with me. Friends, that's why we call it good news. A point he further emphasizes in John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. To keep ourselves in the Word of God is to keep ourselves in the ways of God. Of course, none of us ever do that as we ought to, do we? We all fall woefully short. We acknowledge that there are times when our thinking has more in line with with that of the charismatic preacher we listen to on TV or the the nonsensical feed on Facebook than with the Word of God. I don't like it, and and I trust that you don't either, and we see it in ourselves. So what do we do? Hear these these words towards the end of Jude. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see, our only hope is that we would continually come back to the mercies of God. We're dependent upon him. It's not a past experience. It's a continuing experience that we return over and over again. To the mercy and goodness of God. This morning, perhaps God has stirred things in you, places where where maybe your thinking has been out of line with His Word, maybe it's been your emotions, what your, your heart has been set on, your affections, your desires, what you're chasing after. This morning, we talked a good bit about, in Sunday school, about idols. You know, very simply, while much probably could and needs to be said on an issue, very simply, an idol is something we we desire more than we desire God. And the strange thing is it doesn't even mean we have it. You see, what I have often noted in life is that it's people without money who love it more than those who do have it. I don't have to possess it to hold it in my heart, do I? Of course, that's not just true with money, is it? You know, that's oftentimes true for affirmation. We want people to feel good about us, to like us. And so we we say what we think will make us popular. We play to people. John chapter 12, John writes says that many of them, regarding the Pharisees and religious leaders, says they believed in Jesus but not publicly, for they desired the approval of men more than the approval of God. Oh, that that would not be us. What is it in your life God would deal with you about this morning that you have thoughts about, that you have affections for, that need to be brought into alignment with God's word this morning? Perhaps is we talked a little bit in the early part of the sermon about what it means merely to follow Jesus, to, to know him as Lord. You're recognizing this morning that you're just far from God, that you've been part of the church, you've been religious and spiritual in those senses, but you've never been yielded. You've never surrendered your life to him. You're still living as your own Lord. You know, whatever the place is, the command, the direction is still the same as to, to come wait upon the mercies of God. And then it invite you to do that. In fact, I would do more than invite you. I'd plead with you. But I'd also remind you that, that the Scriptures make this a command. It's not a mere invitation. It's a command for which you and I are accountable to. And in coming there is great hope and there is great joy. But in denying it, oh my dear friends, There is terrible, terrible judgment awaiting. So would you, would you respond with me this morning as we pray together? Oh, Father, that you would take your word, your word right now, and begin to to cultivate that into the ground of our hearts. Our tendency, Lord, is that we, we will move on very quickly, and just as your word tells us that that the seed you have given to us in this moment ends up in other places, some of it eaten by birds, some of it among the rocks and others in the thorns. And God, I pray this morning that God, you would tend to the word you've just spoken to us, that it would, that it would begin to take root in our hearts, deep root, that there it might grow and flourish and produce a harvest of righteousness that would honor you, and that would be to our good, and that would make our lives as lights shining in the darkness. First in Christ's name that we pray this morning. Amen.